Well, a pleasant good evening to all of you. Uh, I am grateful for the invitation that uh, Kevin extended to me. I'm grateful that you're all here, especially those of you that brought uh, your friends and your neighbors to, uh, for us to worship God together. It's indeed a blessing and an honor for us living in the country that we live in, the freest country on the face of the earth to worship God openly without worrying about persecution from our government. It's truly a blessing to be able to do that and come here and worship God. I'm grateful for the kind words uh, in Kevin's introduction, uh, and hopefully I don't bring down what has already been so far a good meeting, as he was telling me when we were having uh, dinner together. But just a little bit about myself uh, before we get into it. My name, obviously, is uh, Justin Lewis. I was born in Trinidad in the Caribbean. I moved to California when I was 13. Then I moved out here to Florida to go to school when I was uh, 24. And I decided it's a lot saner living out here than trying to go back to California. And so I've been out here since uh, 2002. And uh, met my wife in 2009, got married in 2011. And she has been a, a great source of comfort and, and encouragement to me. So um, it's always good when we can travel as a family and come uh, worship here and uh, to, to be with you. So I am grateful again for the invitation and uh, hopefully there will be some benefits uh, as we uh, delve into God's word. Well, uh, the theme for this weekend study is on discipleship and what it means to, to be a disciple. And my focus is going to be on the uh, disciples in the first century and the examples that they set and the examples that we should really be following as God's people. Uh, one of the things I study with Kent Heaton, who preaches in Brooksville, and he was talking to us about uh, the, the church and the uh, restoration and the reformation uh, movement and the fact that we as Christians, instead of trying to go back to the first century, sometimes we want to go back to the reformation movement instead of looking into the Bible to see how God's people interacted with each other, how they handle God's word, the love that they had for each other, and follow that example because that's what God wants us to follow how our brethren in the first century interacted with each other and the love that they had for one another. Now, I forgot to tell you, I'm, I, as Kevin said, I'm a, I, I get a little bit passionate when I preach the gospel, so I know that it's a small room, so I'm going to lower my voice a little bit. Um, I tell people, look, I'm a big guy, so I have a big voice. If I had a dainty voice, it would be strange. So just be a little patient with me. Oh, good. So that's my reason then. Good. Thank you, brother. Well, a, a disciple is a learnee or a trainee, and it comes from a, a Greek word, and I'm not a Greek scholar, so I'm not even going to pronounce the word, but it's, the root word is math, and that indicates thought accompanied by endeavor. And that's from the Vines Dictionary. So a disciple is not somebody who is just blindly following Christ. It requires thinking. It requires thought, 
right? Before you become a child of God, Jesus says you need to count the cost. So you need to think about what you're getting into. And when you become a, a disciple of Christ, it is a way of thinking that is different than what you were before. It is a constant growing. Now, the word disciple was used in a very specific sense in the Bible. And the most common example is the 12 men that was chosen by Jesus before Pentecost. Other examples you find in the book of John, John chapter 6 and John 19. And of course, we're familiar with Acts and uh, the followers after the day of Pentecost. Well, tonight I want to focus on what it means to be a true disciple of our Savior. There are certain requirements that we must meet if we wish to call ourselves a disciple of Christ. That word sometimes is just kind of used flippantly, like the word Christian today, right? If you're not a Muslim or a Hindu, you're a Christian. And and unfortunately, our society has really watered down that term, but it's a very specific, the, the word is a very specific meaning, follower of Christ. And so not everybody who calls themselves Christians are followers of Christ. Not everyone who is a disciple or claims to be a disciple has actually given much thought to what it means to be a disciple. And so what I want to look at, first of all, is the first requirement, obviously, would be baptism, right? Uh, That is the first order of discipleship. And baptism, it involves faith, right, and uh, and discipleship. I want you to turn to uh, uh, baptism, excuse me. It involves faith and repentance. I want you to turn to Mark 16, and you're familiar with this. This is the commission that Jesus is giving to the uh, disciples here. The, um, in Mark 16 and verse 15, he says, And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. But he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. So Jesus makes it very specific, folks. You go out into all the world, and what do you do? Well, you teach them. Well, what do you teach them? Well, you teach them the word of God. You teach them what it is, what God is, who God is. You teach them about Christ. And when they have had this knowledge of who God is and the gospel of Christ, if he believes, then he shall be, if he's baptized, then he will be saved. But he who disbelieves shall be condemned. And so baptism involves faith and repentance. Well, then people in our society today, they argue over baptism. All right, some people say, well, baptism isn't important. You just have to say a prayer, right? Well, James tells us, or you just have to believe. Well, James tells us that if you believe, you're no different than a demon. Because even the demons believe in Christ and they shudder. So that's not just it. Baptism is where you allow God to operate. I heard a preacher say it like this one, uh, uh, given this example, you go to a doctor, you go for a checkup. And so I go to this doctor and he comes to me and he says, well, Justin, as we were doing this checkup, we found that your, one of your arteries in your heart was clogged. That's bad news. But then he says, well, there's good news because in this very hospital, is the best heart surgeon in the entire world. And I showed him your case, and he will operate and remove that clogged artery today. Now, if I say, well, doctor, I believe that he is the best surgeon, and I get up and walk out of the hospital, have I been saved? No. How am I saved? I have to submit myself to that doctor. So I have to believe 
that this doctor is who he says he is, and I have to submit myself to him to go under the knife to have him remove it. That's the only way I can be cured. Well, baptism is the same way. Baptism, this here, my daughter loves every church that we go to. She loves watching the baptistry. This water here is not special, not holy water. It's regular water. But when you submit yourself into this water, you are allowing God to operate on your heart. You are allowing God to change you. That is what you're doing. You are saying, God, I believe that when I am fully immersed and I come out of this water, you will remove my sin and I will be a new creature in your sight. So it's not enough to just believe it and walk out the door. Baptism is when you're submitting yourself to God and you're allowing him to operate and remove the filth of sin from your life. Well, those who were called to be disciples on the day of Pentecost, they were baptized. And again, these verses are, are, are nothing new to us, but again, it's, it's good to, to look at it. In Acts 2 and verse 38, Peter gives uh, the very first gospel lesson, right? And he tells these Jews there that this, the Christ, the one that you were all uh, hoping for, the one that you were all uh, uh, praying to God for, the one that you were reading about, he was here in your midst, but you hand him over to cruel and heartless men. You killed him. Well, that's not good to hear it, but it was the truth. And so after Peter gives this moving lesson, the brethren there, they repairs to the heart, and they say, well, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, Repent and each one of you just believe and it'll be okay. Well, no. He said, repent each of you and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When you are baptized, it's not to be added to a church. It is for the forgiveness of sins. It is God removing that sin from your life. You go down to verse 41. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day they were added about 3,000 souls. And then you go down to verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all people, and the Lord was adding to their number. That's who adds you to the church, beloved. The Lord. Baptism is for the forgiveness of your sins. It is the Lord who adds you to the church. And so those who were to call themselves disciples... They were first baptized. Paul, in Acts 9, Paul was an apostle and a disciple, and he was baptized. You remember he was called Saul of Tarsus. He persecuted the church. He um, has a direct revelation of Christ. He changes. And there were people in Jerusalem who were not accepting uh, of him. And in Acts 9, in verse 26, Luke says that when he came to Jerusalem, he, Paul, was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. And good Barnabas, right? What is Barnabas called? A son of encouragement. Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and how he had talked to, them and how, uh, talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. Well, Paul was an apostle, right? A very specific 
the apostleship was very specific, but he was also a disciple. And so how was he a disciple? Well, he had to be baptized. Not anybody can call themselves a disciple of Christ. You must first be immersed in the waters of baptism. But baptism was and is not just the only requirement for the first disciples, but they were also totally committed, totally committed to the cause of Christ. Please again turn in your Bibles to Luke uh, chapter 14. Luke 14, beginning in verse 26. We sometimes, as Christians, we can sometimes get hung up on just baptism. And we tell people, you know, you, and, and it's true, we need to be baptized. We just looked at that. But when, I, when I'm studying with somebody and they, they tell me they want to be baptized, before we go through that, I sit with them and I tell them that there is a cost in which you have to be willing to pay. You have to be willing. There is, a, there is something that you're going to have to give up. It just is. And if you're not ready to give up whatever it is, then you cannot. Don't waste your time. Because once you are baptized, God is going to hold you to that commitment for the rest of your life. There is no getting out of it. We can quit God. We can think so. But God is going to hold us accountable. And so you have to think about what you are about to get into. Just like any, any lifelong commitment. Marriage. Think about it. What you're about to get into. Because it is for life. And that's what Jesus says here in uh, Luke 14. Um, what did I say? Verse 26. And I'll, I'll read verse 25. It says, Now large crowds were coming along with him, and he turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So picture again, folks, here's Jesus and there are all of these people following him. And so he stops and he's telling them, this is now, this is, this is what you need to think about. If you're not willing to give up your family, if, you're, if your family is a stumbling block and you're not ready to give them up to follow me, then you can't be my disciple. If you're not willing to carry the cross of being a child of God, you cannot be my disciple. If you're not fully committed into this, you cannot be my disciple. What, what is Jesus saying here? You need to think about what you're getting into. Don't rush into this blindly. Understand that there is a cost that you have to pay. For which, of, which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. A few years ago when I went to Trinidad, uh, I was going up to where I used to live, and, and on the road that I'm going, there was this bridge that was halfway completed. And my uncle was laughing, Kevin, because he said, <laughs> the people that began to build it ran out of money halfway. <laughs> so here you have a walkover bridge that's halfway done. 
Two years ago when I was there, the bridge is still halfway done. And I thought about this verse. <laughs> what did those people not do? They didn't sit down and say, hey, it's a good idea to build this bridge. Do we have the money to do it? See, Jesus says you got to sit down and think. Because if you don't sit down and think about it, and you rush headfirst into it, you're going to make a decision that is going to, to separate you from God. Because if you're not fully committed to him, then you just got wet. And so Jesus says, you got to think about this. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, would not first sit down and consider whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and seeks and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciples who does not give up all his own possessions. He doesn't say some, beloved. He doesn't say a little bit. He says you have to be willing to give it all up. And if you're not willing to do it, Jesus says, then you can't be my disciples. Why? We sing songs about being in the Lord's army. I don't know how many of you in here may have served in the military or have family that serve in the military. You know that our military is the strongest in the world because we don't have cowards serving. Same thing with the Lord's army, folks. He doesn't want cowards in his army. You want to be in his army? You want to be his disciple? Then you must be willing to give it all up. You must be willing to give up what this world has to offer. You must be willing to die for the cause of Christ. And Jesus said, if you are not totally committed, and if you are not willing to do that, then we don't want you in our army. Because God has no room for cowards. And so Jesus says, you need to think about it. So what did these first disciples do? Well, the first disciples, they surrendered to Christ unconditionally. Again, go back to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 9. I have to tell you, folks, it's good to hear uh, you turning in your pages. Because a lot of people now have their Bibles on their iPads or their phones. And so sometimes I would get on brethren and say, man, I need to hear the page. And people are like, well, I got it on my smartphone. And that's fine. But I just like to hear, I'm sure Kevin can appreciate that too. Like, you like to hear pages because it shows that people got still have paper Bibles. And they're searching. So I appreciate that, right? In Luke chapter 9 and verse 57, as they were going along, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. And he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another said to him, I will follow you, Lord. But first, <laughs> I'll follow you, Lord. But here's the thing. Permit me to say goodbye to those at home. And Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Don't look back with regret. 
That's what's sad, folks. If some Christians become disciples, or they, or they say they do, and then they look back and say, man, that was a good life. That's foolishness, folks. Don't look back. Press on and look forward. Because God has called you to be better. So, as I said, how does this apply to us? Well, folks, discipleship, as I said, it's not a half-hearted commitment of service. And it's not sacrifice at our convenience. Some disciples today, folks, they want to worship God at their own convenience. When it's convenient for them. Where I preach at in Nebraska Avenue, there's this young, young lady she, she shows up. We have the Lord's Supper after the sermon. And she will show up about 10 minutes before my lesson is about to end. All the time. Because she said the Lord's Supper is the most important part. So, singing to God is not important. Praying to God is not important. We're commanded to do those things. Studying God's word is not important. Is that why Jesus died? Did Jesus shed his blood for this kingdom so we can pick and choose? You have people today that will say, look, you know, churches, congregations have two, two services. I hear people debate that all the time. Well, I have kids, see, and Sunday evening is really hard because my kids get tired. But those same kids you'll take to the movie theater for two hours. You'll sit there and watch a movie. Won't have a problem with that. You have people that look at their clocks, right? The preacher goes over five minutes, end of the world. But you'll sit at Ruth Chris for four hours, eating steak. Not a problem. You're not looking at your watch. I was helping this church out in Tampa a few years ago. And uh, they would usually get done at 11. And so for like two Sundays, my lesson went over by like five minutes. So by the time the elders did the announcements, it was about 11.20, 11.30 was when people were walking out the door. Well, one day I get an email from one of the elders. And they start out the email. I said, Justin, we're so grateful that you've come to help us. You and your family. It's good to see your growth. But we have this against you. You see, Justin, our members... They have a reasonable expectation to be done at 11. And I remember reading that. And I remember thinking how sad it is that God's people can't give him more than an hour. With all that God has done for us. You want to know the mercy of God? In your own time, read the first chapter of Romans. Read, read the first four chapters. And read how, what Paul says about God and his grace. Because Paul says it is because of his grace, because of his son, what his son did for us, even though we were not worthy of it, his son was our propitiation, our atoning sacrifice. Not because we were good people, folks. Not because we were grade A people, 
But because we were in sin and God who did not want us to die in our sin sent his son. His son literally shed his blood to make this kingdom with which we are now sitting in and we argue and fuss over the time to meet. So what are you going to do in heaven? Ain't no clocks in heaven. And we've been singing for two hours. There's none of that there, folks. So if you can't sit still, if the preacher goes, and I understand, look, I understand. You know, you don't want the preacher rambling. I get that, folks. I get it. But if a preacher has something to say, and it is from God's word, sit there and listen to it. Be glad. You know why? There are Christians just like you in other parts of the world that don't have the freedom that you have. You see how we get together on a beautiful day like today? We come together, we sing, you're listening to me yell at you. There are Christians in other parts of, of this world that don't have this privilege, folks. Because they don't have the right to do it. Any day the government could come and kill them. A preacher of mine was preaching, a friend of mine was preaching in Africa. And on his way to Africa, he had these sermons. And he, on the plane, he started cutting back because people were complaining here of how long it was. So he said, look, man, Kevin, I don't want to offend these brothers. I'm just meeting them. So he cut back. Well, after he did his first lesson, a guy raised his hand. He said, when he got there, not one soul moved. They met under a tree. Now, I'm sweating because I'm big. But you see, you're sitting in a pew in your air condition. Well, they're in Africa heat under a tree. Not one soul moved. After he got done preaching his lesson, brother raised his hand and said, brother, could you preach some more? No problem. After it was all over, as the brethren were leaving, he noticed some of them were crying as they were hugging each other. So he asked the man, he said, hey, why are these brethren crying? He said, they're crying because they don't know if they'll see each other next Sunday. He said, after that, he said, I came back to the States. He said, I don't care if people complain. He said, people complain, it goes in one ear and out the other. That's why God gave us this kingdom, folks. And if we are disciples of Christ, then we should love being here. We should love being with each other. We should love to sing songs together and pray together and study his word together. We should choose to be here and love to be here and want to be here because of the awesome price that was paid so that we can be a part of this kingdom. The first disciples also possessed a mutual love. John, uh, Jesus in John 13 and verse 35 says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have what? Love for one another. Beloved, this love was not superficial. Their love was a deep commitment to the temporal and external warfare. Paul, when he talks about the armor of God, he says that we need to put the armor on because our warfare is for the spirit, for the soul. It's a war that we can't see. But we're also in a war of our society, folks. Look at how our society is is eroding before our very eyes. 
Some of you who are more, uh, who are more mature than, than us who are younger, did you ever think that you would see in your country where we are debating over gender? <laughs> Never thought you would see that. But this is what's going on in our society. The family is being uh, corrupted and destroyed. Well, this is all that we have to fight. So we have to have a mutual love. We have to love each other because we are trying to get to the same place. And so we need to have this mutual love and admiration for each other. And this love, folks, sometimes calls for understanding and patience. This is what Paul tells the uh, Galatians in Galatians chapter 6, in verse 1. He says, brethren, if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourselves so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. There is a burden that we each have to carry. And then there are some burdens that we need to help each other with. And Paul says, when a brother is caught in a trespass, don't say, well, now I got him. Now I can go and get him and step on his neck. No. He says, first of all, think about yourself. Hey, if I was in that brother's or sister's position, I would want somebody to help me. And so you go to them in a spirit of gentleness. That doesn't mean that you're condoning what they're doing, but you go to them in a spirit of gentleness and mercy. Why? Because God is merciful to you. And so you help them because you love them. But then sometimes, folks, it calls for toughness and firmness. In that same book, in chapter 2, Paul talks about an occasion where he had to confront Peter. And I think all of us, as we said, we could all relate to Peter, right? Because Peter would always, he wouldn't think before he spoke. He would say a lot of things and go, well, Peter, you should have thought about that, right? We're all guilty of that. Well, Paul says this, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined in his hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward or walking straightly with the truth about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? So here is Peter who is an apostle, right? So he has a strong influence. Well, he would be with the Gentiles, right? So I'm Peter, you're the Gentiles, I'm being with you, I'm having lunch with you, and then all of a sudden, here comes these Jews that claim to belong to James. Now, James didn't, he didn't invent that, that's what Jews were saying. Well, I am of the sect of James. So the Jews come into town, and all of a sudden, I'm shaking your hand one Sunday, and then the next Sunday, I act like I don't know you. So here's Paul noticing this, and because Peter has a, uh, because he has such a strong influence, Barnabas sees it, Barnabas starts acting like him, other Jews see it, they start acting, Paul says, that's not right. Because the Gentiles are just like you. So does he just keep it to himself? No. He was tough with him. Peter, why are you being a hypocrite? Why is it when these Jews are not around, 
You treat these Gentiles like they're your brothers, and then the moment Jews come in, you act like they don't know them. Why are you imposing something that we as Jews couldn't even live by? He did it because he loved them. Paul didn't do it because he hated him. Paul did it because Peter was his brother. And what Peter was doing was wrong. And if Peter continued down that path, Peter would have lost his soul. And so sometimes, folks, this mutual love means you have to be tough and firm with a spirit of gentleness, mercy and compassion. You be tough with them because you love them. That's the kind of love that the brethren had. Finally, this evening, the first disciples were fruit-bearing. Jesus in John 15 and verse 8 says, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. The early disciples, they bore fruit by joining with other disciples. I want you to turn to Acts. We're going to, the remainder of our time will be in the book of Acts. So uh, Acts chapter 9, verse 19. I think that's, let's go down to verse 26. It says, and he came to Jerusalem. He was trying to associate with disciples, but they were all afraid, not believing he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him brought him to the disciples and described to them how he had seen the Lord and how he had talked to them and how in Damascus he had spoken out boldly and he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. The early disciples, that's not the verse that, uh, that I meant to have up there. My apologies. Um, let's see here. Yeah, let's go to verse 36, right? The early, the, 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 um, in Acts 9, in verse 36, the early disciples bore fruit by helping other disciples. In verse 36, this is now in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which is translated in Greek, is also called Dorcas. This woman was abounding with good deeds and kindness and charity, which she continually did. So here you have this woman, uh, Dorcas, Tabitha, uh, Luke says that she was abounding with good deeds and kindness and charity, and she continually did it. In verse 37, and it happened and at that time she fell sick and died, and they washed her body and laid her in the upper room. Since Lydia and Joppa, the uh, disciples having heard that Peter was there, sent two men imploring him, do not delay in coming to us. And in verse 39, so Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they brought him to the upper room. And all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. So this woman, Dorcas, Tabitha, had a huge impact on the lives of her other disciples, the lives of her other brethren. And they had good memories of her. What kind of memories are you making with each other? I had a when I was preaching down in Okeechobee, I had said, you know, when we die, we want to leave a good name for ourselves. And we want the people that remember us when we die, we want them to remember 
remember us as good people. And he said, oh, that's wrong for Christians to think that way. Because we shouldn't think that way. I said, well, and he started saying that it was wrong to think about, about how, what memory you're going to leave people when you die. I said, okay, well, would you name your son Hitler? He said, no. Why? You remember him as a bad man. Well, when I leave this earth, those that have known me, I don't want them to have a bad taste in their mouth about me. I want them to remember me as a good person. Much like this, this woman here. And so she was helping the other disciples. And that's what the early disciples did. So what kind of legacy are we leaving each other? Those of you that worship here, all of us that, that worship in our different congregations, what kind, of, what kind of legacy are we leaving? Are we helping others? Are we making an impact in the lives of each other as the early disciples did? The early disciples also bore fruit by making other disciples. In Acts 14 and verse 21, after they had preached the gospel to that city and had many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch. This is what uh, Paul did. Paul, uh, in, in, in preaching the gospel, right, bore fruit and made other disciples. Are you sharing the gospel of Christ? with your neighbors and your friends? Are you teaching them? Are you willing to, to share the gospel with the lost? What kind of fruit are you bearing in that regard? That's what the first disciples did. The early disciples bore fruit by strengthening, strengthening other disciples. Acts 14 and verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Is that what we're doing? Are we strengthening each other? I just realized I didn't have that up there. <laughs> Sorry, folks. Sorry. But this, this point, it's not up there, but it's, are we strengthening each other when it comes to the worship, uh, when it comes to to uh, uh, living a life to enter into heaven. Are you strengthening Kevin? Are you encouraging him? We were talking about that at dinner. I never wanted to be a preacher. My goal was to play football for the Dallas Cowboys. Retire when I was 35, build a house in Hawaii, and live life great. Didn't turn out that way, but I'm glad it didn't. I love preaching the gospel. But we need encouragement, folks. Because sometimes it feels like you're fighting a war and there's no winning in it. That's how I feel sometimes. And so it's good when I have people there to encourage me and say, no, you're doing good. Keep doing it. Well, Kevin needs it to preach the gospel. And each one of you need it. So how good are you at encouraging each other? Barnabas, a son of encouragement. Are you a Barnabas? That's what the first disciples were. And the first disciples bore fruit by worshiping with other disciples. Acts 20 and verse 7, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. 
Paul here with these disciples, encouraging each other, edifying each other. Are you eager to come together and worship each other, worship with each other on the first day of the week and on Wednesday evening? Are you excited to do that? Before I started at Nebraska Avenue, I was, we were talking about this again at dinner. It was great for me to travel to different places and worship. I traveled, went to Mississippi, Georgia, Monticello, Chiefland, to come down here. I've never been down in Cortez. So, to, so when Kevin gave me the invite, I jumped at it because it gave me an opportunity to meet you. And I love you. Now somebody who, who has never been to a church of Christ, they will say, well, you just met these people. How do you love them? Well, we are bonded by something that is stronger than anything in the world. We're bonded by the blood of Christ. This is the greatest kingdom ever known to man. Because in our society, folks, we are segregated, and that's just how it is. Rich, poor, north, south. When I was in Mississippi, the guy was telling me he, he was born in north Mississippi. And he went somewhere else, or in south, southern Mississippi. So he went somewhere in Mississippi, and they were calling him a foreigner because he was born on the other side of Mississippi. Same state, but they were calling him a Yankee, I think it was. Same state. But that's how our world works, folks. But in the kingdom of God, all of those divisions are removed. Isaiah talks about it, the highway of holiness, where all of these different animals are on this highway and they're together. That's the beauty of this kingdom, folks. So we should be eager to worship with each other because this is a little piece of what heaven is like. Minus the shouting by preachers, right? But this is a little taste of what heaven is like. So, as we close, and I thank you so much for your attention and your patience, let me ask you, what kind of disciple are you? Are you one in name only? Or are you a disciple indeed? If you have been made a disciple, how committed are you as a disciple? And what kind of fruit are you bearing? What, what are you producing? Jesus has a lot to say about what kind of fruit we are producing. It's either good or bad. I want you to turn to John chapter 15. This is what Jesus says in verse 1, John 15 and verse 1. Jesus says, I am divine, and my Father is divine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that uh, bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. If you're not bearing fruit, Jesus says that his Father will prune you out, cut you off. Because you're not bearing fruit. So, what kind of disciples are we? Are we just sitting here, taking up space? Or are we bearing fruit? There's some Christians who call Sunday the Sabbath. Well, folks, the Sabbath was a Saturday. But we as Christians don't have a Sabbath on this earth. 
You know when our Sabbath is? Heaven. So until then, we need to bear fruit. We need to work. Because our rest is there. So until we get there, we need to work and we need to produce fruit. We need to be active people. Because if we're not active, Jesus says, God knows, and he will prune you out. See, I don't know what you're thinking, and I'm glad I don't. But I'm not the one you have to worry about. You don't have to worry about Kevin because we are not your judge. All we do as preachers is uphold the law and preach it. You need to be worried about God. Because God sees and God knows. And it is to God each of us have to give an account. And if we're not bearing fruit, he will cut us off. So let us be like the first disciples and bear much fruit. Beloved, I am so grateful to have given this invitation to, have to come and, and speak with you. I'm grateful for your patience and your kindness. And I'm just going to close with one more thing. There's a psalm, the 134th psalm. It's just like four verses. And in it, the psalmist is thanking God for the night watchmen. Now, who are the night watchmen? Well, these were priests who would stay in the temple at night. And they would keep a light on. And so that light was a beacon for the Jews. If the Jews were coming in, if they saw the light on in the temple, they knew that it was home. But it was also for Jews to know that if they looked and they saw light in the temple, there was hope. Now, you live in a beautiful community. And on, on the way here, I like to look to see at, at other churches. And there are lots of churches around here. But you're the ones that stand for truth. So you have to make sure that the light is on in here. You have to make sure that when people look in this community, that they see hope in this building. And the only way that they're going to see hope is if God's disciples are living it. Because there are a lot of people out there who are searching for the truth. And that search may come to your feet. So they have to know that in Cortez, Florida, that there is hope here. And the only way that they're going to know is if they see the light. That is an awesome responsibility, folks. But God says that we can do it. If we couldn't do it, then he wouldn't have given his son as an example. If we couldn't have do it, he wouldn't have let, uh, uh, left us this blueprint. But God says you can do this. You can be active. You can be alive. You can show a lost and dying world hope. Maybe there are some of you in here who have not obeyed the gospel and you've been studying, you've been studying with someone, whether it's with Kevin or someone else, you've been studying and you're ready to make that commitment. Well, if you're ready to make that commitment, it's a great commitment, but it comes with a great responsibility. You have to be willing to give up your life and serve God wholly. If you're willing to do that, to be baptized for the remission of your sins, then why not do it? Give, like God, give God your life. Maybe as a Christian, you're struggling. You're struggling to let your light show. You're not living as a true disciple. Well, then this is an opportunity for you to get it right, whether it's publicly so that we can pray for you, or whether it's privately between you and your God. Well, I would employ you, whatever it is, fix it. 
Ask God to help you. And James says, if you ask, he will generously give it to you. Why? God wants you to succeed. He doesn't want you to fail. And so he will give you whatever tools you need to give you the spiritual strength to persevere. So if we could encourage you in any way, please come as together we stand and sing.